0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, Philippians 1 is where we're going to be today. Philippians 1, so if you are grab your Bible and turn there. Philippians chapter 1, last week, um, began a new series. Uh, so as we continue to, as a church, just long to become gospel people, um, folks to whom the gospel means everything, uh, we're walking through different books throughout the scriptures to see and understand the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's presented in the scriptures. Uh, We began last week with the first 11 verses of Philippians uh, in a series we've entitled Gospel Humility. One of the incredible things that you're going to find about the book of Philippians is that almost everywhere you turn across these chapters are these pictures that Paul presents of the humility of Jesus. Specifically, and everything kind of builds toward chapter 2, verses 6 through 11— this incredible imagery of Jesus who considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but, but took on the very form of a servant, that humility. And it's that humility that Paul is going to teach to. And he's longing these people, this Christian community, this church at Philippi, this group of Philippians, as they're called, to be people that are truly humble. To be people that are incredibly humble. Humble. Uh, Let's recap a little bit and get to the place uh, where we can kind of understand where we are this morning. Um, Philippians, written in the early 60s. uh, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. We're going to find out more about that today, specifically in verses 12 through 13. Uh, but Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He has been sharing Jesus and as a result has been, has been taken by the Roman guard. He's awaiting trial before the emperor uh, for sharing the gospel there. And he's writing this letter of encouragement to this group of Christians that are in this area called Philippi. Now, this is a little Roman colony uh, and it's in an area of, of Macedonia. So same kind of world as, as when Paul writes in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, same region, same area. That's all Macedonia. Paul is writing this letter of encouragement to these believers because they live in a little Rome of their own. In fact, Philippi is characterized as this place that actually starts, it begins as this group of of this colony, this land, where all of these former Roman soldiers have been given land, they've inherited land, they're retired soldiers, they go to this place and they settle, and what ends up happening is this place, this town, Philippi, becomes like a little Rome. And so in this place, you've got people doing as the Romans do. So when in Rome could also be when in Philippi at this point, all right? Um, What's happening here is you've got a group of people these Roman citizens that in so many ways look very, very different than the Christian culture that is there. This is what would characterize someone in Rome in this time, particularly someone who was really, really proud of their nationality, really, really proud to be a part of the Roman empire. So think of it in the sense of They're the world power, and everyone there in Rome finds their identity as a citizen, as a part of this thing that they're caught up into that is bigger than themselves. And Rome was so revered, so loved, so adored by its citizens, that there was actually a large contingency of most of the people that are Christians in Philippi. They're going to be encountering opposition from folks, not just that love Rome, Right, Not just that, that appreciate where they're from, but actually have gone so far as to worship the current emperor, whether it's Augustus or Nero, or even emperors previous. They're, they're worshiping people who are part of this civilization. Now that probably sounds kind of strange to us, but in this day it would be totally normal for people to be enthralled with, and, and dare I say even addicted to, the idea that I get value from the thing that is bigger than me. This thing that is bigger than everything. Rome is the most powerful, domineering entity in antiquity, in the old world. And so people are finding their identity here. And Paul writes to them, and he helps these Christians understand... The world in which they live. Paul does this in a really humble way because when he starts in verse one, he he talks about he and Timothy, Timothy who's with him in Rome, and describes the fact that he's a slave or he's a servant. That's kind of strange language on some level for Paul because most letters, if you read the New Testament, he's going to tell everybody how he's an apostle. He's going to tell everyone who he is and the authority that he has. But Paul knows this group of believers. They're Christians. They don't need to know his authority. Instead, he gives them identity. He helps them understand what life in Christ is meant to be. And it's one that is meant to be marked by Christ's likeness and therefore humility. So in this nationalistic uh, world... Paul is longing to reach the Philippians and help them grow and mature in their faith with humility as the defining mark. We're going to see a lot of humility come in the text today. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18, this is what it says. Paul writes and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. So, the place from which Paul writes is Rome. It's some 800 miles away. He pins these words by the very power of the Holy Spirit. He pins these words to, to this Philippian church. So, 800 miles away, Epaphroditus is one who has come to, to check on him, to visit him. They hear of his imprisonment. And Paul begins to recount this story of what got him there. Ultimately, what happened? Even in his words, this is what Paul would say, what happened to me? He describes this, and he does it from the most humble place. The things that Paul is recounting is from this place of being in chains. And there's a lot to make of the setting here of Paul being in chains. And it might just sound like, well, this is just Paul telling his story in his like moment of time. He's just saying, well, this is what happened to me, as if it's just a factual event. Those things are true, but he's also sharing this for a much deeper purpose. Throughout these verses, what you're going to find in verses 12 through 18, if you read it like we just read in a kind of a cursory way, you just kind of walk through it quickly, it starts with I want you to know, brothers, so he's basically saying I want to tell you some information, and then Paul tells them information. In many ways, it just sounds like a recap of what's going on with him. In, in letters like this, in, in the old world, it would be very natural to provide an update of sorts, but Paul does something more. He tells them what's going on with him, but he also sets them up for their life in the future because he's going to teach them how to live humble lives in the midst of all they encounter and all the things that will happen to them as believers. So it's really important that we pay attention to the setting here because they need to understand these people in Philippi, these believers, this young Christian community needs to understand what their future is going to look like in this powerful Roman world. Um, while Philippians is often referred to, as you've probably heard this in your life, that it's a, it's a prison epistle or a prison letter. Um, and that's easy to see, right? We just read the word imprisonment in verse 13. It's back up in verse 7 as well. One of the unique things to note historically about this is that that word imprisonment means in chains. And while we've called this a prison epistle for, for a lot of, of Christian history, the reality is Paul is not actually in prison, it's very, very likely that he's actually on house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. There's a couple of different reasons for this. One is that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so at this point, as a Roman citizen, you're given special treatment. So instead of just having to go and be incarcerated in a very specific place, it was the nature of that day to kind of treat Roman citizens with the honor that they were due in this honor-shame society. In this Greco-Roman world, somebody that was a Roman citizen would often get the opportunity before they awaited trial to be on house arrest at home. That's likely where we find Paul. This kind of treatment was common at the time. It also explains the freedom and the access for him to be able to write this letter and quickly get it back to the Philippian church. When Epaphroditus comes is a member of this church in this Christian community at Philippi to check on him, to see how Paul is doing. Paul is easily able to hand him the scroll, to give him these words and take them back to the church that's at Philippi. And one more thing that gives us some, some real indication that this is the case. Look into verse 13. You see this. It says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. So these two phrases are really important because, one, there's this praetorian guard. There's this guard in Rome that was set up around 42. So we're talking like 20 years before Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians. This giant guard that not only serves as protection for the emperor and protection in a militaristic way for Rome, but also in this civil servant kind of way. What's happening is they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're hearing and understanding all of these things that are coming forth from Paul being in this place where he's with one particular person for a long period of time. I'm sure the guards changed out and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, he's got the opportunity to really invest, to really share, to really communicate this. And it begins circulating throughout the entire guard. And that phrase, all the rest, likely means that this is not just going to the military, It's not just going to the guard, it's actually getting behind palace walls, even to the place and those who are close and around the emperor. Now I want you to understand the deep magnitude of this. Christianity in this day is not what it is now, at least from the sense of it being somewhat, even though sometimes it feels marginally, widely accepted. This is a fringe thing at this point. Truly. Truly. We're talking about A.D. 62, when these words are going forth. And this thing that is proclaiming that Jesus is the very Son of God, that He lived, that He was crucified through Roman torture, and is resurrected, and not only that, Rome would be fine if you had some extra gods, they're okay with that. But this Jesus claims that He is the only god he's the only one the fact that this word is circulating is incredible the fact that it's moving this way at all is amazing here's what's even more amazing it's happening while paul is in chains it's happening when he is meant to be stifled This word has meant to, like, Rome is trying to hush this, to stop this, and yet it continually, continually grows. Look into verse 12, and you see this really, really powerful thing. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, that looks really simple on the surface, but it's pretty poignant because two things are are at play here. One, Paul says it has happened to him. From the outset, he describes that his life is out of his own control. We describe things a lot in life like this. You'll never guess what happened to me today, right? And we do that in a funny way or a fun way when we run into somebody that we didn't know we were going to run into. In a strange place, this kind of you know serendipitous meeting, we'd say, man, you're never going to believe what happened to me today. I think more times than not, We use it in a way that describes a scenario that's quite painful and quite challenging. And we describe, this is what happened to me. And we share a story of pain. In these moments, Paul is describing the fact that not only himself, he's really kind of, this is indicative of humanity, he's saying that things happen to us. This is just a general truth. There's so many things in our life that are absolutely out of our control. Unequivocally. Things that we just cannot put our hands on. That we can't grasp. Things that we can't start and things that we can't stop. And yet, in the midst of this situation that seems out of control... And what better place to understand that you're not in control than to be in chains... Literally, Paul takes this phrase, what has happened, and he talks about the magnitude of what God is doing in it. It's in the midst of this uncertainty that he actually sees surety. In the midst of a world that doesn't seem sure, Paul sees something surely. Because look at what he says, it has advanced the gospel. So often we think things happen in such a way where we would say this awful things happened, but then it ended up turning out for good. It's a very human perspective that things that cause us pain or things that we don't like or things that feel uncomfortable, we initially state that these things are bad. That they're not meant to be. That this is a terrible thing and that we would hope it works out for good. Paul does this incredible thing in this moment, and he says this. This happened to advance the gospel. Not the gospel advanced in spite of this bad thing. This actually happened to advance it. I want to let you read the words of of a commentator, a brilliant guy named Moises Silva. He has, has this great work in Philippians, and he describes this very moment in the scripture. He says, The apostle did not merely say that the gospel has continued to make progress in spite of adversity. Rather, the adversity itself had turned out for the advancement of the gospel. These are two very distinct and different things. One says that there's this horrible thing that happens and as a result it's kind of worked out for the good. The other says the worthiness of the achievement of the gospel makes even the thing that is perceived to be terrible something that is actually good. This is a picture of God working together all things for the good. Not It doesn't feel good, but it'll get good, but that the whole thing is good. That's how Paul sees adversity. How do you get to a place in life where you say, I'm not just trying to move through this thing. I'm not just trying to get beyond it, but instead to see the beauty and God's providence and his sovereignty in it. It's when we rest in the surety of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul is describing and will go on to tell us in these next few verses that Christ is his very life. The same way he would write to the Colossian church, very similar to a number of things he's going to write to the church in Rome in the book of Romans. Paul is stating that all of who he is, all of his identity is wrapped up in Jesus. And as a result of that, he can be sure when things seem uncertain. Paul's also doing something really, really incredible here when he uses those words, has happened. Uh, These ultimately kind of describe, uh, the Greek word really means to come about, to come to pass, to come to be. But he's doing something incredible here. He's using casual language and ultimately just saying these things happen. To draw believers into the notion and the reality that, well, you can't just say things happen. God's in control of all of these things God's the one who's sovereign their minds would be awakened to this when they hear this phrase they would know on some level that this is too casual a way to speak about what God is doing and in that moment they're drawn into the deep reality that there are no great coincidences there is a God who is sovereign And in control of all things. And in the midst of that which we find uncertain or challenging or adverse, God is in control of it all and he has promised to work to the good for those who love him. Now look down to the verse 14 and you see this. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much, bold, much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is this incredible thing that's happening in this moment, is that Paul is in chains, the word of the gospel should not be getting out, and yet instead, people even in the Praetorian Guard, even near the emperor, are hearing of the goodness of God. They're hearing of the promise of God of life after death. They're hearing of the promise that they were broken, they're separated from God, and yet in Christ, they can be made new. They can be restored. They can have forgiveness. They can have restoration. How in the world is this happening? Number one, that's astounding. But number two, look at what verse 14 says. The brothers, the Christians that are there, are actually becoming more confident, but what does it say they're confident about? His imprisonment. It's in the midst of this broken and terrible and seemingly awful place that they're actually growing in confidence. The believers are strengthened in their boldness. This is the amazing thing that is the power of the gospel for not only salvation but also for sanctification. For believers to be edified, to be strengthened as they hear of the good news working in the world around them. And I think Paul's doing something really powerful here. Because these believers that are having boldness, these believers that are in Rome, they're ones that are having all of this boldness. you got to understand what life is like for the Christian there. I want you to imagine taking whatever incredible amount of status a person of wealth and honor might have and they say, hey, I want to trade all that in, all this worldly stuff. I want to trade it in and I want to be a nobody. I want to be a nothing. I want to be a person who's not honored, who's not revered in society. I want to be a person who's looked down upon. I want to be a person who, in a lot of ways, in this culture, in this world, would be rejected. What Paul's saying in this moment is that there are people rising up to have boldness to say, I want to make that decision. I want to trade every bit of honor, every bit of wealth, every bit of identity that I have in this world, and I want to give it all away. I want to lose my life in order that Christ might save it. This is a bold and a powerful thing to do. And it's for this reason that the world is being turned upside down by the gospel. Paul writes to, to a group of believers of the church at Corinth, and he's going to say a similar thing. And he's going to describe it with some words that I think can really, really help us here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It says this, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards." You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. Here's the incredible thing. There's all this talk in this 1 Corinthians passage about wisdom. God chose what, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And then he even describes before that, and he says, look, by the world's standards, a number of you were not wise, a number of you were not powerful. Here's the incredible thing that's happening in this moment. This is language directed toward this area, this city called Corinth. But when he writes to these people in Rome and in Philippi, many of them, some of them Gentiles, they were these people that had wisdom, Or perceived wisdom in the world. They had wealth. They had identity. They had all of this stuff as a person, this honor. And they're actually saying, I'm going to trade it in. And it's through this that wisdom is going forth into the world around them. Because that language that Paul uses when he talks about the advance of the gospel, the word really means a progress of wisdom. That wisdom is progressing. It's very much like if you might have read Proverbs uh, 7.1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what's happening in this moment. People are beginning to fear the Lord. They're beginning to trust in Christ. And now this society is emerging that is spiritually wise. But in earthly ways, they look foolish. Paul is writing this and he's describing this situation in Rome and he's sending it in this letter to the Philippians who live in basically little Rome to help them understand the world, what it's like, the things that they will suffer, the things that they're going to be called to do. And he does this to help them understand that Christ is more precious than anything in their life. Moreover, that Christ is actually <laughs> their life because what they're undergoing these believers in Rome what's happening there this is a fool's errand you know what a fool's errand is it's something that you do with no hope of success but the reality is all of this success is happening because of the hope of Jesus Christ This paradoxical thing is taking place where the world is coming to know Jesus as people are giving up their lives. And Paul is stating, and he's writing this to the Philippians, but this is for you and I, that Christ is worth losing any sort of identity that we have in a mere earthly world. He's encouraging these believers to mature in such a way that they would live so humbly that it would be of stark difference to the world around them, and that Christ would not only be exalted, but that now he would be followed. Looking at verses 15 through 18, this latter part, and you see this. This is always a text that that growing up, I I was so confused by this. I did not understand this. And this is why we want to dive into some of the historical background of what's happening in these moments. So we can understand the truth, the meaning behind these texts. So in verses 15 through 18, Paul's going to say this. Some are going to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He's saying the goodwill folks, they do it out of love because they know that Paul's put there for the defense of the gospel. But the former, the ones who preach Christ out of envy, they preach Christ out of rivalry. They're not doing it sincerely. They're doing it selfishly. And they're actually doing it thinking it's going to cause Paul more harm in his imprisonment, in his change, that that would be the goal. They would actually preach Christ in such a way that he would be harmed. We'll talk about that in a moment. The whole goal of this, Paul points to, is to say that it doesn't matter how it happens, as long as Christ is proclaimed and proclaimed truly in that, I rejoice. I want to give you this chart. Um, One of my seminary professors, a guy named Frank Thillman, brilliant guy, knows a ton of the New Testament. He, uh, He did a great work on Philippians. And he uses these two charts to really kind of describe and show what Paul, in a rhetorical fashion, in writing to these people, would do to help them understand the difference of how not to live and how to live. Because you got to remember, in 12 through 18, it looks like a recap. It looks like, hey, here's what happened to me. Some stuff went on. Here's what it is. But it's more than that. He's trying to teach these believers exactly how they're to live in Christ. And so he makes these two charts to compare. He says, look. This is, a, this is a normal rhetorical tool in the Greco-Roman world. You would take these two lists and you would write things in a similar way, but you'd help see the difference. So there are these people who are envious and they preach Christ, but they do it from envy and rivalry where believers, partners in Christ, are going to do it with goodwill. They are going to do it out of selfish ambition, but believers, this is why we preach Christ, out of love. They're going to do it thinking or supposing that it's going to cause harm to Paul. And we'll talk about why they would do that in a moment. The believers, however, would actually see this as they do it because they know that Paul's been called for the gospel's defense. He's saying this is how believers are to live. We're to preach Christ from goodwill, out of love, knowing that we do it for the defense Of the gospel. Now, why would somebody preach Christ out of envy? Why would somebody preach Christ out of rivalry? Why would somebody preach Christ thinking that it would hurt Paul? Why would they do that? You and I can't understand that if we don't understand how this world works. How does this world of antiquity, the Greco Roman world, The Mediterranean world, how does it work? If we can get a little bit of understanding in that, we can understand what all of these words mean in the scriptures in verses 15 through 18. So this is a quote um, that I think is really helpful. Bruce uh, Molina, it's in the New Testament world. He's a cultural anthropologist who focuses on the scriptures. And this is what he says. This is is wordy and it's heavy on, on some level, but I think we can make it simple. And this is the part where everybody wants to go to sleep. I get it. I understand I know what you 're doing. I can see you. Um, that is the fun part of this like, are you, like I can see you. I really can see you um, and now you kind of like 'll well, wake up for a second and you 'll fall back asleep and it 's okay. Um, I want to read through this and help us to get an understanding of why Paul would say truly that people would preach Christ out of rivalry, out of envy. This is what Molina says when he describes this world that paul 's writing to. He says in the first century Mediterranean world. Every social interaction that takes place outside one's family or outside one's circle of friends as perceived as, so any interaction is perceived as this, a challenge to acquire honor, a mutual attempt to acquire honor from one's social equal. So I want you to think about this. Think, pretend you and I live in a world where every interaction we have, the goal is to acquire honor from one another. So like, you know, you see me like in the you know, in the paint section at Walmart, right? And we don't just, like, say hi to one another. We don't, we don't just greet one another. We're actually conversing in such a way where I'm trying to tell you reasons you should honor me. I got, I'm kind of a big deal. There's a lot of stuff going on here, all right? You should honor me, right? Can you imagine that world? All right. So, so that hopefully that gives us a little bit of insight. Then he says this, Because of these constant and steady cues in Mediterranean culture, anthropologists call it an agonistic culture. The word agon is Greek for an athletic contest between equals of any sort. So Paul is writing to a group of people. I want you to think about the birthplace of the Olympics. I want you to think about the beginning of sports and competition in this old world, how people are starting to view social interactions like a sporting event that there's like an actual competition that there's something to be earned even in just the way human beings relate to each other Paul's going to use this language he's using this athletic contest kind of language because he's going to go ahead and write in the future and say and we're, we these are verses that we know we understand from Philippians and Hebrews right we're going to run the race we're going to run with perseverance This is why Paul is using that language when he writes, he talks about envy, he talks about rivalry. What all this means then is that society that looks on all social interactions outside the family or substitute family as a contest for honor. Since honor and reputation, like all goods in life, are limited, every social interaction of this type comes to be perceived as an affair of honor, A contest or game of honor in which players are faced with wins and with ties and with losses. Now, I want you to think about how broken and sad this is. That people are viewing human relationships as such that they're drawing identity from an interaction they have where they win or lose. Could you imagine a world like that? Like if there was this thing where there was an app or something and you like put pictures up. And people like clicked a thumbs up or like a heart or something. I don't know. Um, right? We're not so far removed from this. Where we live in a world where we derive our identity from competing with other people. I mean, for crying out loud, was it People Magazine? It's like who wore it best? How do you wear it best? If it's on, you wore it, you won. <laughs> You did it! I guess they'll all of it worse for people who are wearing it, right? Look, this, this stuff exists in our world, and you and I are not immune to this, because we compete with one another. We really do. about all kinds of different things. Because we want identity. You know what we want? We we'll want to be honored? You know what's deeper than honor? Love. That's what you really want. That's what these Roman citizens really want. That's what the church at Philippi wants and needs. And what Paul is doing here is he's revealing to the Christian community that Christ being known, that Jesus being exalted, that the gospel going forth is his prize. It's his treasure. How can that be? Because all life and love is wrapped up in Jesus Christ himself. Paul's entire identity is within Jesus. And in these short verses, Paul is teaching these believers at Philippi, these folks in a little Rome. And quite frankly, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit is teaching you and I. Through these very scriptures, that our identity is to be in Christ. That we're not to be these people who pursue honor, we're to pursue humility. I don't pursue people to look at me, I pursue people to look at Jesus. What do we proclaim? Christ crucified. Where's our glory? In an empty tomb. What do we celebrate? What does my life point to? If it is not Christ, I will fail to see life for all that it is. And I can have all the honor and all the glory and so could you. And you could be adored and you could be loved and people could dote on you and talk about how amazing you are for all the various different reasons. And then you can lay your head down and I can lay my head down on that pillow at night and wonder why I feel so empty. Paul's saying, Christ is life. Not let him be in your life, let him be all of life. Give yourself to Jesus. Paul's doing something really powerful in this section. He's not just telling us here's what's going on. He's teaching them how to live. Here's one of the first things he says. Adversity is not an obstacle to overcome, but it's an opportunity to be embraced. The hard things that happen to us are not just things we need to get through to get to the good moment. Instead, we need to look for the beauty and God's providence and his sovereignty in the midst of every circumstance. No matter where we find ourselves. Believer, that's our call. That's our opportunity. Here's the second thing. As we do that, this is what we'll find that God is sovereign and sovereign, and He's truly working everything together for the good. He's doing this as a promise made to you. But you want some blessed assurance, you want some certainty, you want some encouragement? It's this: God is faithful because he cannot be dis- disloyal, unfaithful to himself. We can trust in his promises. Here's the last thing, that Christ is life so much so that honor, reputation, the world, all of those things should fade away as we recognize the goodness of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing that that we had the opportunity to do this morning. As our worship team comes to think on this, where's our adversity? And how often in the midst of that am I seeing it as opportunity? How do I ever move beyond the place where I'm just trying to get beyond that thing? To go to the place where I'm embracing the beauty of my circumstance is that this is the most powerful circumstance that Christ is in me by his spirit. Don't matter where I am, heights, depth, powers, nothing can separate us. From the love of Christ. And to remember that Christ is not a thing among many things. Christ is not a part of my life. Christ is not the first priority. You need to understand this believer that, that Jesus Christ is your very life. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. And he is the one who will ultimately glorify you and restore you to the Lord in fullness can we be reminded of that truth and trust in that? Because if we believe those things, we will live humble lives. And in that humility, Christ will draw people unto himself. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we long to live as believers who are humble. Father, it is in humility that the gospel brings hope to the world. Father, we long not for identity in things that will pass away. God, would you make us people who long to live in such a way that we would do what Paul will boldly state next, that that to live is to celebrate Christ, being in Christ, and even death is gain for us. To be absent with the body, to be present with you, Lord. Father, in this world, in this time, we're not so much different. We want honor. We want identity. God, we confess it, forgive us of it, and draw us into the deeper reality that all of the fullness of who you are is found in your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.